you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. So I haven't really spoken much about this on this podcast, but I moved across the world to the United States from my home country of Israel without my family, and starting brand new has honestly been such an adventure for the last five and a half years. Throughout, I've learned to be so proud of being an immigrant and the power that comes with bringing your perspective and learning from others, whether it is completely in line with what you've been taught or, quite frankly, the opposite. There are also many challenges that you experience as an immigrant, as an international person in the United States, and you learn to be really creative and, dare I say, innovative in the way you approach anything from problem solving to your career to just getting stuff done. Today's guest, Krupa Taylor, is not only a fellow immigrant, but she is also director, customer engagement network at American Express. She earned her bachelor's degree in economics and poli-sci from the University of Michigan and would definitely want me to say go blue right at this moment, Uh, but she also earned her MBA from Columbia Business School, so at this moment, I will gladly say go Lions. In between her time at CBS and today, she's worked in a variety of capacities at American Express, ranging from product management to strategy consulting, and most recently, she will talk about her more operational role leading the Platinum Card Member Customer Engagement Network. You'll very clearly learn that Krupp and I connect over being secret entrepreneurs, but within the landscape of the companies that we're in, but also in exploring all the side hustles that are out there. Krupa launched her first independent venture, a peer-to-peer rental business for South Asian clothing, while she was in business school and cleverly named it Sari Exchange. She has also taken on some exciting roles at companies like Unilever and also at a consultancy called Coop & Spree. Today we get into all of those things and talk about what it means to be an immigrant, what it means to be passionate about customer experience, as well as what it means to be entrepreneurial within a large company such as American Express. You'll hear us laugh a lot, so hopefully you have as much fun listening to this as I did being a part of it. Hi, Krupa. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hey, Zoya. Happy to be here. This is super exciting, and I know people who listen are going to say that I do say that quite a lot, but this is actually really exciting because in many ways to me, you are exactly what WIN stands for. For our listeners, I met Krupa completely accidentally. She sat at a table next to me, and I heard her talking about Columbia Business School, and I just started at Columbia, so I basically turned to her and inquired her about all the classes I should be taking, and the rest is kind of history. Your career trajectory is so impressive, and you spent the last six years at American Express, but what isn't on your resume is this incredible international background, being a first-generation American, and working incredibly hard to get to where you are. So take me through that journey. Yeah, so thanks for asking that question, Zoya. It definitely has been quite the journey. I've been with American Express, as you mentioned, for six years, but if you really go from the beginning, I started that journey in a little town called Moscow, Pennsylvania, ended up here uh, as my dad was 
finding a hotel to manage, very similar to some Indian backgrounds out there in the in the United States. He found a good school district, and then you know from there it was always about the hard work. So, wanted to go to an all American school. Ended up at the University of Michigan, go blue, and mm-hmm. from there, uh, not really knowing what career paths were out there. Of course, I had older cousins and older supporters who had different career paths, but I never really understood what that meant. So, my first job was actually at Unilever as a market researcher. And it was a fascinating role because you're learning about the sociology, psychology of why people were buying specific foods or personal care products for their family and had even been thrown into a new project that they were starting there. Uh, again, just never knowing, I have to be honest, I was a little naive growing up. I didn't know exactly where I wanted to go, but always knew I had this sort of thirst to solve problems. And that's sort of what's really guided me. I would say through my career. So while I was at Unilever, you know, loved the job, loved learning about all these things, I had sort of this idea about starting a business and I didn't know what to do. You know, although my dad was an entrepreneur, it was a different type of business. I saw the hustle he brought in, so I knew I could bring that in, but I didn't necessarily know all of the other, you know, nuts and bolts, financial statements or, you know, operations, all the things that would go into starting a business. And that's really what led me to go to Columbia Business School. So going to business school really opened my eyes, not only from learning what you could do entrepreneurial, you know, courses and just getting out there and and understanding about funding. But I also learned from my peers about all the jobs that they had and the jobs they were looking to do. I didn't land in American Express right after that. I actually spent um, a year in consulting because I wanted to get that breadth of really understanding what goes on in in terms of a company. And then I spent about two years at a startup uh, helping a friend from business school open up a women's wear boutique. So my journey is, you know, I wouldn't say it's a straight line. Uh, It's definitely something that I've enjoyed mainly because of that thirst and the hustle is what I would say. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many exciting parts of your story, which we will surely touch upon, but I do want to take it back to kind of you saying that you had to, you had to figure it all out. I mean, most people don't start out of college at Unilever. So, you know, you didn't have the traditional parents that could tell you, you know, which SAT course to take or which job was the best. So how were you able to manage it without having, you know, the guidance of your family in the traditional American way that people are used to having? Yeah. I mean, my peer group, I have to say, I joined a lot of associations when I was at Michigan, mainly because I had interest in those associations, but also just, again, to get that sort of friend group. And um, I relied heavily on my older peers to really see, oh, okay, you know, I feel the same way that this person does and has have the same outlook. Oh, and it looks like they applied to these specific internships. Let me talk to them about it. Let me ask them sort of what their experience was and why they were looking at those specific companies. So I would say, you know, it was a combination of just my peer group. And then, you know, it may not have been traditional as it relates to my parents, but they definitely did their best to sort of find out all the information that they could to sort of also guide me. You know, if I said I was applying to Unilever, they would then go into their own sort of research to be like, oh, yeah, and, and they offer this and they do this. Um, I love that. So, yeah, it was, it was, 
I have to say, although I own my career, I own sort of my path in life, it is always influenced by my family and my friends who have similar values to me. Um, And I find that super important, you know, wherever I'm going to be going or where I am right now. Yeah, completely. You you know, you've mentioned entrepreneurship several times. It's a really funny quick backstory, but for 3 months of our lives we actually called each other I co-founders, know. which is hilarious and amazing. Uh we as I said, we met sporadically and we actually wanted we actually bonded over wanting to be entrepreneurial but still do our day jobs. So, as you can imagine, we are still in our day jobs. <laughs> but I but I think it really raises that really important quality about you, which is your inherent ability to innovate where you are and be both an entrepreneur as well as an entrepreneur. So we will get to the entrepreneur shortly, but I am very curious to hear about that very first venture that you created uh, by yourself. Yeah, it was called Sorry Exchange. It's had a number of iterations since then. But the idea was to create a peer-to-peer rental system for South Asian clothing. So, uh, And the idea really came from my mom's closet, which I think a lot of people could probably relate to. Um, But my mom has hundreds of saris, which in the South Asian culture, that's very common. You know, you're never wearing the same sari more than once. And for those that don't know, a sari is six yards of fabric that you wrap around your body. And in America, you're not necessarily wearing it every day. You're wearing it on special occasions. But when we go to these sort of South Asian events, you are decked out. You want, you feel like a princess. You want to be in these sort of gowns or saris, right? So my mom had hundreds of these. And when I went to business school, Given the diversity of backgrounds, there were a number of students that had South Asian descent that were getting married, or, you know, even if they weren't in the business school cycle, there were friends who were in business school that had other friends that were South Asian that they were going to events for. So it sort of just happened, I would say. I would say naturally where I was like, Oh, of course, like I have a number of inventory, like I have inventory that you can use right? that you got for free from your mom. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Like I have this, why not create a business model out of this? And wow, great perk. It's super green, right? You're now creating this sort of ecosystem where it's not about creating new goods. It's using what you already have. And for me, the more you can do that, that really excites me. And so that's kind of where the idea came about, you know, in full transparency, the reason it sort of stopped was I I got a little financially concerned. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I want this to go somewhere, but can I take this risk? And I think that comes with having an immigrant parent that did take that risk, right? When you're growing up and you're seeing sort of them take that risk, you wonder like, do I want that safety or do I also want that risk? And sometimes you think, did they come to this country for me to take that risk? And you have to sort of weigh that out at different parts of your life. And it's like you can take it from so many different sides of the coin, right? You can say like, I shouldn't take that risk because they put out so much for me. But on the other hand, it's like they took that risk so you could do it too. <laughs> exactly. No, that's exactly what it is. And and so, you know, I, I sort of went through that in my mind a number of different times. And then that's how I landed with going to a consulting job. I was like, okay, for now, I'm going to put this on hold. Uh, Did you try to raise money for it? Was there a moment where you said, I want to fundraise? I didn't. I just felt that that would dilute what I was looking to do. I mean, you know, originally, it's funny, the original idea that I wrote about in my essay has actually come back 
to fruition. So the original idea was actually to take the six yards of fabric and create something else. Can you create upholstery for furniture? Can you create dresses for children? And the idea would be for everything new that was created for someone that was paying, could you also create something for someone that was less fortunate, right? So if I created a dress for someone who was able to pay, could I actually use the material that I hadn't created for something else to send a dress to India, to send a dress to Africa? And so I'm laughing because I think this whole like movement of upcycling is coming up again. And so who knows, maybe I'm going to dabble, dabble in all of that again. Yeah, the world is your oyster. Absolutely. You know, you are a self-proclaimed customer champion. And I and I think your career shows a lot of that dedication to the customer. Even hearing you speak now, I think your ideas and the way you go about approaching things is really customer-centric. So m- maybe at Amex, maybe at other times in your career, what was a time that you really had to think about this customer-first approach while maybe innovating for the customer that doesn't yet know what their need or want is? So customer first, as you mentioned, is something that I'm extremely interested in and a big advocate for. And it's something that I bring into every job, sort of as you mentioned. But if I think about a specific instance where I've had to bring that hat on for someone you know, for a customer who may not be thinking about what they're looking for, I think American Express is actually a great example. So American Express, most people know them as a credit card company, a charge card company, right? There's platinum, there's the black card, whatever. There's all these different sort of products that we have. And the rose gold. (laughs) And the rose gold, which I have and I love. Um, It's a beautiful (laughs) card. But it's also sort of this lifestyle brand, So it owns companies like Resi. It owns things like um, Mezzi and Cake. There's a number of other parts of the American Express portfolio that do not have to do with financial products. And I think that that is already in and of itself so customer focused in the sense that our lives are probably very intertwined with payments. Everything we do at least in in the United States, you're paying for. And so what we've done at American Express, and I can't sort of claim that I've done all of these specific parts, but what we've done is how do you take that piece of the payment and expand on it to make each part of that payment system completely seamless, right? So one of the things I'm reminded about a project that I worked on for American Express that was very customer focused, which might have uncovered problems that a customer didn't even realize they had, is just very generically the disputes journey, right? When you are calling in because you have a dispute on your card, there are definitely steps that American Express can take prior to that dispute becoming a dispute. And of course, after that dispute has come influencing or at least mediating what that outcome looks like for our customer. And so one of the things that we did, and I can't go into too much detail, but I think it kind of alludes to the point that you understand all of the steps in the journey. You really have to go deep to say, this is the point the journey actually started. And so if you're, you know, for the customer, they think it started when they called in. What we were doing is saying, let's take a a look back. Why did that call even happen? And that's what excites me about being customer first, because it's never about a point in time. That point in time might illuminate 
that specific problem or issue. But what it actually does is help you understand what were the steps taken prior to that by the customer that might have actually caused for that specific point in time or contact to happen. So for me, when you're thinking about customer first, the customer is only thinking about it in that moment in time. What you have to do sort of when you're taking that advocacy for them is think about all the steps that might have sort of contributed to that point where that contact was made, as well as all the points that happen after. So that's sort of where I would say is like my unique interest. It's never about that point in time. It's always about expanding front and back, you know, diagonal, if you will, to get to sort of that root of the cause. Yeah, I completely agree because I think that's actually one of the challenges when you do work at a big company. It's it's something that I experience in my role today. And it's like, how do you move the needle and how do you think bigger while still knowing that you are in a certain department or in a certain role, which is actually where I think your role at Amex or a mix of your roles has been really interesting because you work on both strategy and an execution. And so how do you think you're able to keep kind of like the promise of both of the sides of those things when we often see that these blue sky strategy, innovation strategies don't actually end up making it. Oh my gosh, the number of blue sky strategies that don't make it. It definitely happens. And, you know, it's perseverance is important, but someone, a friend had told me this great quote, and I use it all the time. I used it for my entrepreneurship days and I use it at American Express. It's think big, but start small. And so when you're an entrepreneur, you have the tendency of having that vision. At least that was my tendency. I was the vision piece of entrepreneurship. I Mm -hmm. saw what things could look like. I always see what things could look like. But that piece that's so important when you're thinking about execution is where do you start? Not only from a project plan standpoint, which honestly to me sounded so unsexy at times, it was <laughs> to sit here and think about all of the steps that I would have to take for this to come to, to fruition. It sounds exhausting and really just not that fun. Mm-hmm. But once you get into it, you actually realize you can then innovate within those specific steps as well, because you're realizing why not have fun with the step itself? It's not just about that vision. So give me an example. Let's say it's about engagement. Let's say it's about my colleagues that I'm working with, right? My objective is to make sure that every single one of the colleagues that I work with feel that American Express provides health and wellness as part of their job. And so what I'll do is say the blue sky would be that people actually believe that coming to work is health and wellness, right? Mm-hmm. That is that makes my mind work and that makes me healthier because I'm talking to people, you know, whatever that that sort of might be what my blue sky is. Then what I do is try to break that down with my colleagues. Okay, if that's what we're thinking, what actually needs to happen for that specific vision to take place? And then what we do is put a timeline against it, right? So if the first step is actually, you know, a career counselor or a health and wellness counselor coming to start your day every single day for five days, okay, let's break that down even further. Who's the counselor? How are we going to make sure that they get there every single day? And so I think it's a piece of breaking everything down and then having that accountability with your peers or someone else. For me, in my experience, what's held me to my successes is really having that accountability, whether that's from peers. I'll even take it back to Sorry Exchange. Hey, Krupa, as part of Sorry Exchange, have you, you know, 
created the website? Have you gotten the LLC, right? And having someone that sees your work plan and is willing to sort of hold you accountable to that, I really think makes a difference for helping you get from strategy to execution. How do you kind of climb out of that hole in the moment where you feel like you've been so bogged down in the details that you've lost the innovation? How do you kind of run back up to it? So I, so as much as I hold other people accountable to hold me accountable, we are, we live by our Google calendars or our Microsoft Outlook. Mm -hmm. So I will put reminders. I know it sounds so silly, but I'll put a reminder on a Friday or Saturday. Think big. Today's not about being small. I love that. And it's really cheesy, I know, but it's just a way for me to like get out of those details or, you know, maybe it's actually get into those details. So whatever I think I'm going to need, I kind of think a little bit ahead to say, put that reminder, give yourself, you know, a three hour block if you need it and go through whatever those ideas are. Well, yeah, I think so many people, when they hear the word innovation, it's so woo woo to them. It's like creativity strikes and now we're innovative, but it is all about those processes that you implement. So now you're starting a new, really exciting role at Amex and you're going to lead one of Amex's customer service centers. How did you go from kind of that strategy and execution role into this new role? And and where do you see the opportunity to innovate there? Yeah, it goes back to where we started with having this maniacal customer focus. And when you're in strategy or product, of course, you're building products for the customer. But the only moments where I was talking to the customer were in focus groups or when I would go down to the customer service centers. And I got so much energy by being down in the centers whenever I visited. And so my specific strategy group in American Express is in the servicing group. So I was in a unique sort of place within the company to do that shift, to go from strategy in the servicing group, even though my projects weren't necessarily servicing based, to go into the servicing group itself. For me, it was really about getting closer to the customer and making an impact quickly. When you're in strategy in a big company, you do take a little bit of time to get to the execution piece. And so what I was finding as I was doing a bit more research on the sort of service centers is you can become an owner of your business, make an impact and be closer to your customer by sort of making this shift. And so I went with it. I said, you know, this could be a risk. I have, I, I could potentially not know what I'm doing, but I felt very secure with the support I had with the team that I was going to and the team that I had left, um, as well as just sort of senior leadership. So it's also exciting because it's like a, a throwback to your dad, right? Like you are taking that risk. Totally. A th- exactly. A risk in such a different way, but it's still a risk, right? And I love that you brought that up. Innovation in the center is going to be really interesting. I think operations, as you think about automation, machine learning, robotics, but at the same time, wanting to bring that humanity into each and every interaction. So I think that there's a lot of processes that are going to be enhanced. And I think there's going to be a lot more self-servicing. And what I think that's going to lead to is every time a customer is calling into the center, it is going to make that interaction that much better because we're smarter, we're faster, and we're there for you. We are there to make your experience as elevated as possible. And so I'm really excited about what's to come in the centers. And, And the type of roles that are 
customer care professionals who are picking up the phones, I think the role for them is only going to get more and more exciting. Being on the outside of that, it seems like a process that hasn't really changed in so many years, right? Like the idea of calling customer service was the same 25 years ago. So there is definitely room to disrupt and innovate. A lot of these, whether it's blue sky strategies or execution or now working at the customer service center, requires buy-in and being able to create something new within that. So was that inherent to you or how did you pick that up? Storytelling. Wow. The power of storytelling. I wouldn't say it was necessarily inherent. I think, uh, and that should excite people for those that feel like they're not good storytellers. You, it is, you can learn it. You know, when you talk to your friends, you're always telling a story. The more conscious you are, even as you're talking to your friends, the better storyteller you're going to become. And so that was a piece of it, right? Just becoming more conscious in every single interaction and saying, okay, what is the story that I'm really trying to weave here? Can I have said it better? Reflecting on that. I think in PowerPoint. So for me, like... It, it, and it doesn't work for every single company or for every single person that needs the buy-in, but it does help me tell the story. Again, what's the objective? Who's my audience? Okay, how am I going to get to this place? Do they need data? Maybe they don't need data. Do they just need the results? So really understanding your audience and then always trying to think, what's the best way that I can tell this story? So for me, buy-in actually is the same exact thing as you just saying, Krupa, are you a good storyteller? And then giving yourself the opportunity to know it doesn't have to be in the workplace setting. Like I mentioned, your friendships can also be about storytelling. You know, are you the funny one? Are you the one that's the serious one? And without labeling yourself, but if you're able to give yourself the opportunity in those interactions to make it about storytelling, you'll only get better and sharper at it. And I think that's what sort of includes buy-in. And so what's the time that you failed at it? A time where it failed was, you know, to take it out of work because I'm talking so much about sort of being conscious with your friends and and sort of trying to weave stories. You know, I was just in Palm Springs. I was so lucky to be in Palm Springs for the last month. And, you know, there was a moment where we were thinking about going on a hike to Joshua Tree and we didn't end up doing it. I really wanted to go on that hike. I don't think I was able to give the points as to why it would be a great time to go. It was just not the right moment. And I think, hi, I wonder if I said what amazing pictures we would be able to take or how great the weather is, or if we'd be able to go to a market as well as go to on the hike, or maybe I reduce the hike and say that it's not that complex, how much more buy-in I would have gotten. And so your daily interactions actually end up being a lot about buy-in and storytelling as well. I imagine Krupa literally making PowerPoints to her friends about the pros and cons of Joshua Tree. I I love it. I'm, I'm totally, totally here for it. So I think something that you've also brought up actually when talking about buy-in is this idea of, you know, having an idea, not seeing it get executed, and then seeing somebody else execute it. And I think that's something that's a lot of the times been brought up in innovation, where as a woman, you have this idea and somebody says it in a different way, and suddenly it, it's accepted or executed. You are so honest and so authentic to who you are and the background that you came from. But I can imagine that that's not always easy and sometimes can work against you. So how has gender and intersectionality played into your own journey? It's a great question, Zoya. And the first word that actually popped into my mind was imposter. 
I think that when you are a woman of color, you think a lot about whether you deserve to be at the table in these conversations. And you sort of have to think, I am at the table. And so if I'm going to be here, I'm going to make sure that my voice is heard. Um, And I'm hopefully going to do it in a way, it's always in a way that's respectful, but I'm hopefully going to do it in a way that is the best outcome for everyone that's involved. And so, yeah, for me, I I think I still struggle with it at times. It's sort of like, how did I end up here? And what makes me the person that people are coming to for, you know, guidance or advice, whether that is from a peer or company perspective? I don't think I'm alone when I talk about imposter syndrome uh, as a woman of color or, you know, even just someone of color sometimes that does happen and it does pop up. But I think it's the awareness that really helps with overcoming that syndrome. It's the awareness within yourself, but also within society. I mean, I think what's encouraging is people are much more vocal about these feelings and what their experiences have been and what sort of mechanisms they've used to make that something more powerful within them versus something that sort of holds them back. You know, it's something I think about every day. There's moments where I'm in a meeting with my leadership and I was like, wow, how did I get here? Um, And then there's moments that I'm like, no, lean into that, lean into knowing you don't have to have the answer, but your opinion still matters because you've had some sort of experience that allows you to be at this table and to speak up on what you've seen. Yeah, and your experience is incredibly impressive. So I, I completely agree with that. Has there ever been a moment that you've received feedback? You've looked at that feedback and said, I think that feedback is coming from a place of inherent biases against me. Yes, I do. I think that that has happened And those are difficult situations because you're rifling between getting the feedback and being gracious about it and knowing that it's something that is potentially a perception with this person that I'm going to now have to turn around. And on the other hand, it's also like I could just completely ignore this because I know where it's coming from and it doesn't apply to me. And you're in this constant battle of thinking, was this advice something that I should be working on? Or is this actually something that I can wipe away? And even if you're not coming from, even if it's not biased based on color or gender, I think you go through that anyway. It just gets enhanced and heightened when you are because you constantly have to filter. That is like one thing that I've learned. You have to filter what you're hearing because you don't know where it's coming from. And for me, like a story I'll tell you, when I've gotten that sort of feedback before, I have now come to a place where I actually ask a lot of questions so that I can get to a place where I feel comfortable saying, was this bias or was this true feedback? And, you know, I've been lucky to have the peers and the colleagues and the leaders I have who are open to having those discussions. But I think it's important. I think it's important to own what you have and then allow that to be a dialogue. I I think that's the biggest sort of strength that we have in in this. Allow all of these conversations and all these feelings to be dialogues because you're not only going to get better and really be able to filter through with someone else who's giving you that feedback, but they're going to get better because it gives them that sort of view of, wow, maybe the way I said this is actually not really the best way to give that feedback, or maybe it's just biased. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much. That was incredibly insightful. So before I let you go, I would love to ask you one last question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Okay, wow. So one month, one year, and 10 years. So I'll take that from the personal side first. I'm pretty transparent, even with the number of podcast listeners that I don't know. You know, a month from now, I am going to be moving to a different state to help run the service center, which I think is just incredibly exciting. I think one year from now, personally, I hope, you know, I've really made an impact on that center, but as well, I am on the way to hopefully creating a partnership and a family from a personal front. And 10 years, I hope I'm, I'm hope I'm a mother and an executive. That's, you know, two of the things that I'm really passionate about and hoping for in my future, but also giving back for me personally in 10 years. You know, I hope I'm doing that every day, but I hope I'm doing that at such a bigger scale 10 years from now that even I'm going to be looking back and say, wow, I'm so proud of myself and proud of where this country as well as sort of this world has come. Thank you so, so much for joining us today, Krupa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Zoya. It's been a ton of fun. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenandinnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.